Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds. Uh, great to see you again. I was uh, away last week getting some, some needed PTO, which hopefully all of you are getting at some point. Uh, we have a really uh, fantastic Grand Rounds uh, today, and uh, we have people introducing people, introducing others. So it can be a little, uh, we'll take some time to get to actual speaker, Dr. Booklet, but I think you'll enjoy what he has to say today. A uh, couple of things before I pass it on to Dr. Fink. Uh, we, we did learn that uh, state officials estimated Monday that between 40% of COVID-19 cases in Connecticut are of the variant first identified in the UK, which is, uh, which is more transmissible. And, and, so, and so far, uh, the state has only seen one case of the variant detected in Brazil based on our genetic sequencing. Now, we, we are seeing a, an increase in COVID-19 cases and positivity uh, and in fact, Connecticut is uh, emerging relatively as a hotspot. Uh, so it just uh, the message to all of you is remain vigilant, get vaccinated when you can, wear your mask, social distancing. Those rules have not changed yet. They're not going to change for a little bit. Keep your guard up and I think we'll be, we'll be okay. Uh, so as things open up and they are opening up more and more quickly, you still have to be careful in, in that process. Uh, I'm going to pass it on to Dr. Fink, but before that, I just want to make sure that everyone knows that we have the inaugural Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Symposium on Friday, April 9th uh, from 8 to 1130. Uh, it will feature uh, Priya Pawani, uh, Dr. Fink, and uh, Reverend Carolyn Wilkins, and that's going to be a very important one uh, for you. But now let me pass it on to Chris, who will introduce uh, Dr. Martin and then Dr. Brooklyn. Chris? Thank you very much, Juan. Um, good morning, everyone. Uh, I would like to take this moment to uh, introduce our fearless leader of neurosurgery. I promised to make this short so that uh, we could get to our talk, um, but I, I pulled together a few of my favorite images of our leader, um, and experts say that the best leaders have a good sense of humor. Anyway, welcome, John Martin, um, <laughs> and thank you for all that you do. Thanks, Dr. Fink. I appreciate that. Um... That's fantastic. I can grab my slides very quickly. I want to welcome everyone to Neurosurgery Grand Rounds uh, this morning. Um, we, we can get those pictures off the screen anytime you'd like. Yes, anytime. Thanks. So welcome to Neurosurgery Grand Rounds. Um, uh, uh, Marcus, myself, and David, um, uh, who make up the service, would like to welcome you. Um, uh, to hear this guy talk, um, I've been working with Marcus now uh, I, I mean, it's remarkable to me that it's, it's been as long as it has, seven years. Um, uh, Marcus came to us from a very high volume uh, fellowship in Atlanta um, uh, and showed up here, has done just fantastic work. You can see his storied background. But Dr. Bookland, personally, what I'll tell you is he's a guy who likes to hang in the background, okay? Uh, sort of searching for photos for Marcus is not so easy. Um, uh, and he thinks uh, that, you know, he sort of skates on by and doesn't have any of these fun things that can happen to him. But the internet is a remarkable thing. And I mean, when you do a little digging about Marcus and his pastoral backgrounds in Simsbury, um, uh, you, you can definitely see that he enjoys the country. Uh, but I can tell you that, you know, despite the fact that he is a country mouse, he's, a, he's an absolute animal in the operating room. Uh, he's a regular Rambo uh, doing what he does. Uh, really remarkably talented guy. Um, uh, and when he goes uh, and starts doing research, I mean, even Einstein sits here and says, Marcus, this is beyond what I can understand. Um, so uh, uh, remarkable talent. Uh, what I can tell you is all kidding aside, uh, Marcus is a fantastic guy seen here with one of our visiting professors, uh, Jay Wellens. Um, uh, not only bright, uh, not only talented, but very personable. And uh, I feel very fortunate to have him as my partner. So I introduce to you, Dr. Marcus Bookland. 
Thank you, John. That was fantastic. I will never underestimate your photoshopping skills in the future. So I get to talk to you today about pediatric surgical epilepsy. And I say get to because this is a topic that I think if you ask most pediatric neurosurgeons what surgical field they would most enjoy speaking of, it's going to be pediatric epilepsy. Because of all the things we get to treat, this is the one type of surgery that I think has the most profound impact on kids' lives in the most immediate ma manner possible. Pediatric epilepsy can be a true anchor on the cognitive development of most kids. It can prevent them from playing sports, prevent them from attending school regularly, and indeed cause chronic cognitive degradation in their development over years if it's not properly controlled. So to be able to offer a surgery that allows you to, in a matter of hours sometimes, wipe that uh, epilepsy away is a remarkable feat. Um, I'm going to go over a lot of topics regarding epilepsy surgery over the course of this topic. We'll start over with some basic numbers regarding epidemiology and the relative efficacy of this fantastic set of surgeries, and then go into a little bit about the history of epilepsy surgery, how it's evolved, what are the guidelines that we've developed based on that history that we've had, uh, how do we work patients up for epilepsy surgery, because not everyone is a candidate, and then what are some of the, the basic categories of epilepsy surgery that we employ. I do want to give a... Uh, a special thanks to my colleague, Dr. David Hirsch, who provided a lot of these fantastic slides. Um, if you see any slides that look particularly beautiful, assume they are probably Dr. Hirsch. He is a far more adept PowerPoint uh, 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 expert than myself. So to start with, what is epilepsy? Epilepsy is defined in most of the studies I'm gonna be talking about here is any condition whereby you've had two unprovoked seizure, seizures that have been validated by a, a neurologist or other epilepsy specialist. Using that definition, it's widely estimated that roughly one to 2% of all children in the United States have epilepsy. As neurological diseases go, that's a pretty high rate for us. There aren't many diseases that I treat that occur with that frequency. It also means that most of you probably have one or two or maybe more patients within your own practice that suffer from epilepsy. Unfortunately, a little less than a third of all patients with epilepsy will find their particular form of epilepsy refractory to medical management. It means there's a lot of kids for whom a pill is not going to be the lone solution to their epilepsy. That's where surgery comes in. And surgery is something that a lot of us don't necessarily think of as an early step in the management of epilepsy, but we probably should. The fact is that there is a mountain of data that's been collected over the last couple of decades that shows that pediatric epilepsy responds eminently well to surgical in intervention. In certain cases, better than medical therapy alone. In fact, in this study here, this is a meta-analysis of well over 200 studies looking at management of pediatric epilepsy patients, either surgically or with medical management alone. And in the summation of these, all these studies, it was found 
that there was a six and a half fold odds ratio in favor of surgical management over medical management alone. That is a pretty remarkable effect size when you look at it and really speaks to the quality of the surgical options that we now have available for kids. I also would be remiss if I didn't at least mention early on this particular study, which really, I think, began to create the paradigm shift away from medical management alone for epilepsy patients and more and more towards surgery. This is a study that came, back, came out back in uh, 2001 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it was one of the first truly well-designed randomized controlled trials in neurosurgery where we put head-to-head surgical management of temporal lobe epilepsy to medical management, which really had been the mainstay prior to this. The results of this study found that at one year post-intervention, patients treated with surgery had a 58% seizure freedom rate compared to just 8% for the medical group. The results of this survey spawned a great number of additional randomized controlled trials since looking at different types of surgery, uh, epilepsy surgery for different types of epilepsy that have all largely shown comparable results where surgery has consistently provided better control for many of these uh, patients who have been refractory to at least one agent for their seizures. Because of these results, the American Academy of Neurology now recommends surgery as the treatment of choice for medically refractory temporal lobe epilepsy and has done so since 2003. So how did we get to this point? Well, the history for epilepsy surgery actually goes back over 100 years. Remarkable as these results are, they're not exactly new results. We've actually known for over 100 years that surgery works very, very well for many types of epilepsy. Ever since this man, Sir Victor Horsley uh, and uh, William McEwen performed the first epilepsy surgeries back in Great Britain in the 1880s. Horsley's first surgery was actually done on a Scottish man who suffered an injury as a child. He had a, a severe brain injury that caused a depressed skull fracture, caved in his skull, and remarkably for the time, he survived and went on to be a semi-functional member of society, but one plagued by recurrent seizures and this horrible cranial defect. Horsley went in and took this man to the operating room to elevate his skull fracture. In the process, he noticed that underneath the fracture was scar tissue on the cortex of the man's brain, and he made an intraoperative decision to resect that scar tissue, something that, frankly, we wouldn't necessarily do today without talking to a patient. He changed up his surgery, but the results were that after the surgery, not only did this man have a better shaped skull, but it was noted that his seizures went away. Horsley and his uh, mentor, Ferrier, at the time surmised from this experience that seizures might be re the result of symptomatogenic zones or lesions within the brain that if you removed would then cure or at least improve the seizures. Horsley went on to perform similar surgeries in eight other patients before he retired and in the process developed a very active lab researching ways to better localize and identify lesions within the brain. He became the pioneer for early neurosurgical stereotaxy techniques that we still use today, equipment that we still use today. He also had a very um, active speaking tour throughout the, uh, the medical circuits in Europe and uh, 
William Osler, who was a sheriff in Glasgow at the time, said that Horsley's work in surgical epilepsy was some of the most profound and exciting work in all of medicine at the time. And he felt that through the union of neurology and neurosurgery may actually have a cure for epilepsy in the near future. And while Osler's enthusiasm was slightly overblown, he was correct. This was a truly groundbreaking turn of events. All of a sudden having a cure for epilepsy potentially where none had existed before. Horsley's techniques were picked up uh, in the next century by uh, the Germans primarily, who really became the epicenter for the neurosciences in the early part of the 20th century. Freda Krauss and Otfried Forster in particular took Horsley's techniques, standardized them, and then proliferated them. Whereas Horsley only did nine epilepsy surgery cases in his whole career, Krauss did 400. Between Krauss and Forrester, they really helped to codify the early stages of neurosurgery, particularly around epilepsy surgery. And Forrester ended up training many of the early neurosurgical greats that would go on to start up neurosurgery in North America. Krauss, for his part, trained many of the neurosurgical greats that would go on to start up neurosurgery in South America. At the same time that these two gentlemen were bringing epilepsy surgery into the mainstay as a primary treatment for many types of epilepsy, Hans Berger, a psychiatrist and neurologist back in the days when specialties were sort of a vague thing, um, developed the world's first scalp EEG in 1929 as part of his attempts to study the psychic energies of the human mind, a somewhat romantic version of, what, uh, of uh, the electrical discharges that underlie epilepsy. And his invention would go on to revolutionize how we both diagnose and treat uh, patients with seizures. The next great iteration in the development of epilepsy surgery came from a, a gentleman, Wilder Penfield, who trained under Forster in Germany and brought those techniques back with him to Montreal. He performed the first temporal lobe resection for epilepsy back in 1936. This procedure is still a mainstay of epilepsy surgery and the most common epilepsy surgery that we do around the world. At the same time, Percival Bailey here in North America also began using EEG to tailor his epilepsy resections to the areas of epileptic discharges. Prior to this, Horsley and Krauss would use intraoperative stimulation and sometimes in awake patients to try to map out where they had to resect this was a groundbreaking thing where you could actually detect the seizures without necessarily having to wake the patient up and direct your resections to the electrical activity instead of just anatomic landmarks. So that covers in general, the history of epilepsy surgery up to near today. What did we learn from all this? Well, one, we learned that a great many people probably could benefit from epilepsy surgery if they failed medications, but who in particular should be referred? There's no hard and fast rules for this, but the International League Against Epilepsy, a consortium that dates back almost as far back as epilepsy surgery itself, I think the first meeting was just a month after Horsley performed the first surgery, currently recommends that patients who are between the ages of one and 60, who've had seizures for at least two years and no acute life-threatening events, and have failed at least two first-line anti-epileptic drugs should be considered for surgical evaluation. It's that last guideline that 
where there's still a little gray area as far as when you refer people. Most people will fall between one and 60, and most of our patients who have seizures have had it for at least a couple of years. But the question of when do you refer patients? Is it after they fail two drugs, three drugs, four drugs? Because the guidelines only say a minimum. A group in Scotland tried to answer the question a couple of years ago by looking back at what the success rates for anti-epileptic drugs were after different iterations of, um, of therapy. So basically, how likely are you to achieve a positive seizure-free result after you've been trialed on one anti-epileptic drug versus a second, a third, a fourth? When do you say enough is enough? And what they found was that after the first drug was trialed, almost 87% of patients actually had a good positive response at one year. However, after that, the results got increasingly less optimistic. After you failed one drug, your odds of succeeding with a second was only about 12%. And with a third, it was less than 5%. And the numbers got worse and worse after that. The results of the study tell you two things. One, we have some fantastic first-line anti-epileptic drugs. 87% is great, even though we know that a lot of those patients long-term will probably become refractory over time since the long-term results are only, or that about 30% of patients are gonna be refractory. But upfront, that's a fantastic result. It also says that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to keep trying medications after your second attempt. The odds that the patient is going to be responsive beyond that second drug are getting to be quite, quite small. And it's probably time to start thinking about other treatment modalities while you're still continuing to work on the medical management. Now, how do we decide what patients would respond to surgery? Just because you failed at medical therapy doesn't necessarily mean that you will succeed at surgical management. It's important that we tailor these surgeries to the patient. We do that by developing a map of their epileptic network, finding the nidus of the epilepsy, finding where it travels, and finding how those regions relate to what we call eloquent cortex, or portions of the brain that control critical functions like movement, vision, speech, memory. There's two main modes that we use to perform this evaluation. One is radiographic and the other is gonna be electrical evaluation. The most common radiographic technique that we'll use is MRI. MRI allows us to get high resolution images of the brain looking for asymmetries in the organization of the brain as well as what we call lesions, be they oncologic, vascular, scar tissue, just something that shouldn't be there or is abnormal and that we can try to localize to epileptic discharges. It's not, it's not sufficient that you find a lesion. Just because you have an abnormality on an MRI does not necessarily mean that that abnormality is causing seizures. We actually see MRIs all the time with what we call unexplained brain objects. Um, most of those patients don't have seizures and those objects don't need to be removed. But if you can find a fixed lesion on the brain and you can pair that with electrical data that suggests that the seizures are coming from there, there's a very good chance that removing that lesion will help that patient's seizures. In some cases though, MRI is insufficient to show us what we need to see. 
That is, there's no obvious lesion structurally with the brain. In those cases, we'll use other radiographic adjuncts to try to bring out the seizure focus in the imaging. And one of the most common ones is gonna be PET, where you inject a uh, tracer for metabolic activity into the patient, and then you see which parts of the brain are utilizing that tracer most uh, efficiently. And typically for a seizure focus, the areas that are going to show, uh, that we're looking for are hypometabolic areas. That is, most seizure foci represent pathologic or damaged brain tissue, where metabolism is going to be less than the surrounding tissue. So we're looking for these holes. Ideally, we will try to get temporal data in addition through things like ictal and interictal spect, where we actually inject the tracer at the moment that a seizure starts and then perform serial images looking at how metabolism changes within the brain. During a seizure, a seizure focus should be hypermetabolic as blood vessels dilate and the brain that is seizing is trying to pull in more and more energy to support the seizure activity. And then as the seizure passes, when you hit the interictal phases, the met metabolism drops off and it becomes hypometabolic. We can then pair up those images to see exactly where those seizures were coming from. But as I said, identifying a lesion is only part of uh, the task. We actually have to pair that with electrical activity. And to do that, we use Berger's old um, technology, the EEG, usually starting with scalp electrodes. Scalp electrodes are a great screening test. You can do it outpatient. It provides a lot of good data, but it does have a limitation. Standard scalp electrodes only provide a low resolution view of where seizures are coming from. You can only fit so many electrodes on someone's scalp and the information you're getting is being diffused through spinal fluid and dura and bone and scalp so that in the end, the most we can say is that a seizure is coming from some general region of the brain. And that's not good enough for surgical resection. We wanna know exactly where the seizure is coming from. So we only take out the tissue that needs to be removed. To do that, we often have to move towards invasive monitoring or what we call second phase testing. Here we will implant electrodes on the surface of the brain or sometimes even into the brain itself these electrodes are much higher resolution than what you can achieve with scalpel electrodes. And they bypass all those diffusing tissues like the bone and the, and the skin, allowing us to get high resolution images of where these seizures are coming from. This is an example of a subdural electrode um, phase two study. A window in the bone has been made and the electrodes are literally placed right over the surface of the brain. The bone's then replaced and the, scalp is closed and the patient is allowed to go back to a floor where we begin monitoring. And our epileptologist will then map out the seizure locus over the brain, as well as any potential eloquent tissue. This is an example of such a mapping procedure. In this case, you have a patient, MRI showed a lesion denoted in green on the top right corner. And then the surgeons went in and placed electrodes over the surface of the brain and began extraoperative mapping. The markup is typical of what our epileptologists will do here. They'll actually mark what happened at each electrode over the course of the monitoring period. And in this case, 
electrogenic activity was noted at this electrodes where you see marked with an X. That includes tissue that is anterior or beyond the area of the lesion that was circumscribed by these dotted lines. If you had just gone in and said, well, we found seizure activity in this part of the brain and we found a lesion in that part of the brain, we're just gonna remove the lesion, you would have missed all of the, this additional leptogenic tissue and the patient would have gone on to continue to have seizures. It would have been a failed surgery. But with this mapping, we're able to identify additional zones of epileptogenic activity that need to be resected. Additionally, in this particular mapping example, you can see that they've marked it with green X's, areas where visual phenomena were detected when the electrode was stimulating, indicating that there was eloquent cortex nearby that needed to be avoided. This is critical information for us when we're planning these surgeries. We wanna avoid those eloquent cortices. As I mentioned, we will sometimes place depth electrodes as well to map these patients out. Typically, this will be through a method called stereotactic EEG. There are advantages and disadvantages to both methods of intraoperative mapping. Stereotactic EEG is performed using small stab incisions um, and very small holes in the skull in order to place these electrodes into the brain in very precise locations under stereotactic guidance using those same techniques that Horsley developed you know, 140 years ago. The advantages to this is that it's relatively minimally invasive. You don't have to make a big craniotomy flap. It's less painful afterwards. Not that subdural electrode placement is terribly painful either, but there's less narcotic use certainly. And it allows you to get better coverage, particularly over the medial structures of the brain. It's very hard to get coverage of subdural electrodes over the inner hemispheric fissure or the fissure that separates the two hemispheres of the, of the brain. With the SEEG electrodes, we can reach these structures much more safely. Besides improved pain control, there is some data that suggests that SEEG electrodes may offer theranostic value as well. That is, you can not only diagnose seizures with these electrodes, but you can actually transmit radio frequency pulses back through the electrodes and create a thermocoagulation of the tissues where you believe you've detected a seizure focus. In all honesty, that particular technique is beginning to fall a little bit out of favor as we're learning that long-term seizure control with ablative procedures alone is not as great as with resective surgeries, but it is still a potentially uh, easily employed therapeutic that may help some patients to avoid an open surgery down the road. I'll just touch briefly on a couple other diagnostic techniques that we will sometimes employ with pediatric patients, a little less so. MEG is a way of actually performing essentially an EEG with an MRI, taking advantage of the dipole moments that are formed with uh, seizure activity. Uh, WADA tests are employed far more in adults than, than children. It's used to localize the language centers of the brain by injecting amabartol into the carotid circulation in order to essentially put one hemisphere to sleep. In, all, in reality, rarely do you get just one hemisphere asleep. It's not actually as accurate as we once thought. Um, and then fMRI, which is a functional MRI, where you have the patient undergo several standardized tasks and then use metabolic tracing to determine which parts of the brain become active, helping you to localize some of those eloquent tissues. Um, we use it a little less 
often impedes just because not all of our patients can cooperate with these tasks. But for the older patients, it can be very helpful in identifying those eloquent cortices. So that covers the basics of pre-surgical evaluation. If you have a patient who goes through all these tests and we can identify a fixed uh, leptogenic zone that is distinct from um, eloquent cortex, that is a great patient to take to surgery because there's a high likelihood that we can potentially cure them or at least reduce their seizures significantly. So what do we actually do? Well, over the last hundred years, we have developed a lot of different surgical techniques and the exact surgery is tailored to the type of epilepsy the patient has, the location of the epilepsy and where their eloquent uh, cortex lies. In most cases, we're going to try to do a resective surgery because the outcomes for those procedures are the best. Five-year epilepsy freedom is highest with resective surgery and can approach 60% for some of these surgeries. As you move towards stimulation and disconnection procedures, the results start to fall off a little more and can be as low as 15 to 25%. Still better in many cases than medical management alone, but obviously we always want to push towards the best outcomes possible. Disconnection procedures are being done less and less nowadays, in part because the efficacy is less. Um, the idea behind a disconnection procedure is that you cannot actually remove the epileptogenic zone, and instead you try to box that zone out. You remove the connections from the, uh, the epileptogenic cortex to the surrounding brain so that it's isolated, can no longer affect the functional tissue around it. And then stimulation techniques involve directing generalized or sometimes specific targeted pulses to the epileptogenic brain in order to stop the wave of um, uh, seizure activity before it can reach uh, eloquent tissues. The most common surgery we do, again, is the temporal lobectomy. All, this surgery goes all the way back to Penfield in the 1930s, and it is still one of the most effective surgeries that we have for seizures. The classic anterior temporal lobectomy involves removal of the anterior three to six centimeters of the temporal lobe, depending on whether or not you're on the dominant or the non-dominant side, as well as the mesial structures, including the amygdala and the hippocampus. It's a remarkably effective surgery. As we said before, this is the first type of surgery to be reviewed in a randomized controlled trial, and it produced results that were stunningly um, uh, positive. Over the last several decades, there have been variations spun on the anterior temporal lobectomy, particularly in the 80s and 90s. We tried to minimize these surgeries to where they became more minimally invasive, restricted to just resecting the hippocampus. Um, that became very popular for a while. We're now starting to move back towards Penfield's original surgery as we've discovered that long-term results for these more minimally invasive surgeries tend to have higher seizure recurrence rates. Most likely that's because the amount of tissue you resect in an epilepsy surgery is absolutely critical to the success of the surgery. If you leave epileptic tissue behind, you're more likely to have a recurrence. And with these minimally invasive procedures, you're more likely to miss um, seizure generating tissue. Extratemporal surgeries um, are less rote compared to temporal lobe surgeries and they are often tailored to the network itself. 
They involve removing uh, two and a half to three centimeter rim of cortical tissue in order to remove that epileptic uh, tissue and disconnect it from the surrounding white matter. Hemispherectomies are probably the most dramatic surgeries that we do. They are only appropriate for a very small number of patients, but where they are appropriate, the outcomes are phenomenal. We usually use these for patients who have uh, been suffering from Rasmussen's, Sturge-Weber, or hemispheric uh, perinatal infarcts, where entire regions of the brain have been knocked out and uh, damaged, thus generating seizures. The idea behind a hemispherectomy or hemispherotomy is essentially to disconnect the two hemispheres of the brain, to isolate the damaged hemisphere from the functional hemisphere so that the patient can continue to function off of the normal hemisphere without having it constantly interrupted by seizure activity coming from the bad hemisphere. The results for these procedures are absolutely fantastic. Um, and it's a very gratifying procedure, albeit, like I said, only a small number of patients uh, are eligible for this. I'm gonna gloss through some of these disconnection surgeries because as I said, they're, they're not typically done uh, anymore because their efficacy rates are, are, are much lower. But for a select patient, it may be appropriate. Subpeel transections are used primarily when the seizure focus is located directly within eloquent cortex. So if you had a seizure focus that was right in the motor strip, we obviously are not gonna resect a patient's motor strip. The um, impact on their quality of life would be too devastating. However, you can go in and disconnect the columns of neural tissue within the gyri of the motor strip so that the seizures cannot transmit horizontally along that gyrus. Again, it's a, you're not removing the, um, the symptomatogenic zone, as, as Horsley would say. Say you're just trying to isolate it so that the seizure stays contained. The same thing is done for, sorry. The same thing is done with corpus callosotomy, where you're disconnecting the two hemispheres along its largest white matter fiber. This has been used in the past primarily for patients with drop attacks or Lenesca-Stowe syndrome. We're doing it less and less now because a lot of the stimulating uh, techniques, particularly the vagrant nerve stimulator, seems to have roughly comparable uh, outcomes to corpus callosotomy without the same uh, major surgery. But again, for some patients, this is a, uh, a very appropriate uh, procedure. And then the last major uh, surgery I'll talk about that we do for epilepsy is the vagus nerve stimulator. This device was actually developed originally for cardiac patients to help treat arrhythmias. And it was only as a, uh, a sort of a happy coincidence, they happened to notice that a lot of the cardiac patients who had seizures, um, even if their arrhythmias didn't get better, their seizures did. And so we started applying these stimulators primarily for seizure management. A tiny coil is placed around the left vagus nerve, mainly because the right one has too many fibers innervating um, uh, the heart and will cause too many uh, bradycardia events if it stimulates. But uh, right, you place the leads around the vagus nerve and then a generator is placed subcutaneously underneath the skin, uh, either in the axilla or the, the pec. And it will deliver a series of pulses to the nerve that will then stimulate through the nerve back up to the brainstem and the diencephalon. 
It's unclear exactly how those, those, those pulses work to stop seizures, as the vagus nerve has an enormous number of connections uh, throughout the brain. But in about 25% uh, of patients, within a few months, you, you'll start to see a reduction in their seizure frequency. And over time, out to three to five years, a lot of times that number will go up even higher, in some series as high as 50%. It's not often a cure for seizures, but it can dramatically reduce the frequency of seizures and oftentimes help patients to get off polypharmacy uh, plans uh, that may have side effects themselves. So what's the future of epilepsy surgery? There's a variety of new technologies that are starting to come down the pipeline. Some of these are already being employed in the adult world and may hit peds uh, in the decades to come. One of the big ones is deep brain stimulation. We've been using this in adults for movement disorders for a long time, and now a lot of physicians are starting to apply deep brain stimulation to other neurologic disorders like depression and obesity and seizures. And there've been a lot of targets proposed that may be able to squelch seizure activity when stimulated, including the cerebellum, the um, mesial temporal lobe, the subthalamic nucleus, caudate nucleus, and the anterior nucleus of the thalamus. At present, there aren't a whole lot of studies to verify any one of these targets as truly efficacious or not. One of the, the lone ones is the SANTI trial back in 2010, which was a multicenter double-blind randomized trial where bilateral electrodes were placed into the anterior nucleus of the thalamus. And at least in early outcomes uh, studies, a uh, 40% reduction in seizure frequency was noted in the stimulation group versus the, um, the non-stimulation group. Should be noted, there's still a 15% reduction in seizures even in the non-stimulation group, which does bring up one of the big problems with a lot of these implant-driven therapies. It's very hard to get a good control. Just implanting an electrode into the brain will often slow down seizures. So there's a very high placebo effect with these studies. Another technology which is gaining uh, a lot of momentum is responsive neurostimulation or RNS. This is a bit of a variation on our phase two uh, diagnostics where we place either depth electrodes or subdural electrodes over the surface of the brain. In this case, if the epilepsy zone is found to be over eloquent tissue such that it can't be resected, the idea has been brought up to use that electrode um, either a subdural or depth electrode to actually deliver a stimulation directly to the epileptogenic zone and shut it down. So in this case, the electrode is, instead of being removed, is hooked up to a generator and a sensor that will detect um, epileptic activity and then deliver a pulse to stop it. So I wanna end just by thanking the fantastic team that I, I work with here. I love epilepsy surgery, as you can tell, and it's only possible if you have a great team. Um, we do uh, have been doing an increasingly large volume of cases here. Uh, we do all breadth of epilepsy surgery from temporal lobectomies to hemispherotomies, uh, SEEG electrodes, and all of that is a very complex uh, dance made it possible by these great people that you see on the screen here, my colleague, Dr. Hirsch, 
Dr. Madden-Cohen, Dr. Warden, and Dr. Schomer. I thank you for your time. Thank you, uh, Marcus. Uh, truly, truly outstanding presentation. Uh, I learned a tremendous amount, and I'm sure uh, the 163 participants in this talk uh, also uh, have benefited from this tremendously. Um, I have John right next to me, and uh, I'm going to have him run the Q&A. Um, so we'll open the questions here. Great. Fantastic uh, talk. And I also want to give a shout out to the team. Marcus uh, um, and Jen in particular um, have, have really taken a team approach. Uh, uh, they've gone uh, and pursued additional training outside of the institution as a team. Uh, uh, Jen and her team have done a tremendous work uh, recently updating their level four certification uh, uh, for monitoring. So uh, big kudos out to the neurologists for that. Congratulations. Uh, and thanks to the institution for their investments in technology like the 3T MRI uh, and functional MRI, which have really uh, been very beneficial to the program. We'll take our first question from Dr. Zelnaritis. Uh, doesn't the surgical outcome depend on selection of cases for the surgery, i.e. for medically refractory and not surgery versus medical to start? Oh, it absolutely does. Selection is key. Um, but the thing is, if you don't start looking, you won't find it. And I think that's what a lot of the studies in the last several years have shown, is that um, you, once you hit that, that, that second medication, that has failed, it's time to start looking. Because the process itself of determining whether or not a patient is a, a surgical candidate, candidate takes a long time. As you know, you have to get through phase one and potentially phase two testing. Um, but if you don't look, you're never gonna find out. And the longer you go, wait on these patients, the less likely that any intervention is gonna be successful. Great. And if one question is great, two is better. Uh, Dr. Zelnaritis back again with increasing failure of surgery after multiple drugs. Is this a less favorable candidate to begin with that makes surgery less successful more than the waiting? Um, I, I don't think the data really shows that. And most all trials looking at even stimulation therapies, which tend to be the palliative ones that we fall back on when patients aren't amenable for resective surgery. And those are going to be those polydrug failure patients. Um, even the stimulation procedures tend to provide a, uh, a, a significant benefit over just continuing down the polypharmacy course. Not to be outdone, Dr. Exadi would like a double question here for you. Uh, uh, question number one, is there a role of surgery in infantile spasm? That's a great question, and uh, I am unaware of uh, a surgical intervention targeted to infantile spasm. Um, uh, second question, sometimes the epileptic tissue is outside the lesion, like in tuberous sclerosis. How do you approach that? Well, that's where that, that mapping is so critical, because just tracking the lesion, as you said, on imaging is often insufficient. That was the problem that Horsley used to have way back when, is he, would, he could only track the lesions. He didn't have EEG. So that, that second phase monitoring is indispensable for what I do. Uh, I, I can't remove all of the tissue unless I know where it is, and we can only discover that through um, the second phase monitoring. Two compliments, one from Dr. Exadi and one from Dr. Pierce. Uh, thanking you for a great talk. Okay. Uh, uh, Monica Damsko uh, with a question. Could you possibly comment on the loss of function as a sequela of surgery? So obviously we, we try very hard to to avoid introducing new deficits to the patient. That's why we're so cautious about 
uh, trypsing into epileptogenic tissue that may be crossing into eloquent cortex. Um, I'll be honest, most of my experience, we tend to see a gain of function if, with these kids because the epilepsy itself is often masking a lot of their functional and certainly cognitive uh, capabilities, particularly if they're one of these really refractory kids who's having multiple seizures a day. Um, loss of function is always a risk of any in intervention, but we try very hard to avoid it. And if the patient does have an epileptogenic zone that crosses into eloquent cortex, we will often refer them for stimulation therapy or some other less invasive treatment that doesn't have that risk. Dr. Zemsky, I'm not sure if this is a professional question or a result of his uh, uh, time in social isolation. There is increasing use of transcutaneous neuromodulation for pain disorders and depression. Any use of this in epilepsy? Well, as I said um, towards the end there, DBS um, is certainly becoming increasingly interesting. And, and the new uh, neuropace or the, 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 um, the direct cortical stimulation systems show very promising results. And that may be the future. We may eventually move away from resective surgery to just targeted stimulation. I'm not sure that transcutaneous will give you the same results though. As I said, trying to direct a pulse through scalp and bone, you end up with a very diffuse wave at the target. Uh, it's probably not fine enough. Uh, Dr. Ratson, how do you know what is eloquent tissue? Even in 2021, it seems like hubris to think we know what brain tissue is unimportant enough that it can be safely <laughs> removed with impunity. Thank you, Dr. Ratson. That's not an, that's not an untrue statement. The fact is that, you know, the old adage, you only lose 10% of your brain, we all know is totally false. You lose 100% of your brain. And it is true that any amount of tissue that you remove will have some some minor decrement if you were to do a deep enough neurocognitive test. That being said, if you can keep the resection to the epileptogenic zone, you're keeping it to tissue that is frankly already damaged. Uh, so you're not really adding uh, to the uh, to loss at that point. Okay. Jamie Kubanski, uh, I'm making an excellent point here. Great talk. Also kudos to nurse coordinator Lori Schick for all the work she does for these patients. She does tremendous work, I'm sure. Dr. Bookman would agree. I, I did look for some pictures for the rest of the epilepsy team staff. However, I could not find any. I'm sorry. I should have gotten, uh, I should have pulled Dr. Martin in for his photoshopping skills. We could have done something. Uh, we also have a follow-up from Dr. Madden Cohen on an earlier question uh, that there is a role uh, for surgery in infantile spasms if there's a focal lesion. The problem is that many patients with infantile spasms have multiple or large lesions. Thank you, Jen. So, Marcus, I have a, a question. So, it, it, of uh, all comers with epilepsy, can you give me a sense of a, a percentage of, of those that will end up in will, requiring epilepsy surgery? Um, of those who actually come on, of all epilepsy patients, how many will actually end up having epilepsy surgery? That I don't know. 30, as I said, 30% of patients with epilepsy will be refractory to medical management. So that's the cohort that you're looking to pull out um, the potential surgical candidates from. Um, theoretically, any one of them would be at least a candidate for a stimulation procedure. Um, so I guess 30% would be the, the actual top bar, but that by no means means that 30% of patients are gonna get surgery. Marcus, do you have a, a feeling uh, in terms of uh, when we look at subdisciplines of pediatric neurosurgery, 
Uh, is epilepsy, from your understanding, uh, one of the uh, sort of largest opportunities for surgical candidates that are just not offered uh, this uh, nationally? Um, it's certainly possible. I mean, it's not something that I'm aware of that there's any specific data on, but I do think there is a general um, hesitancy to go down the surgical route for a lot of people for understand with understandable bias. We always like to start with least invasive and work your way up to maximally invasive. That's often how we think as practitioners. But, um, you know, we also have to think about efficacy. And there's no doubt that when it comes down to efficacy, virtually every single uh, RCT that we have out there comparing surgery to medical management in the initially medically refractory patient group has shown that surgery offers benefit. Um, probably should be thinking about more. One final question from Dr. Iksadi. There are electrophysiological other markers like high-frequency oscillations at the epileptic focus. This has been investigated for seizure prediction as well. Are you able to use that with our current hardware? So I probably defer that to um, to Dr. Matt Cohen or Shomer or Warden, who actually performed those uh, those studies during the second phase testing. I do believe that uh, that we do. Um, uh, really, that team is fantastic. The, the things they can tease out and the tricks they can use to stimulate and pull out epileptogenic zones is amazing. And I couldn't do this without it. Great. Thank you, uh, Marcus, uh, again, for uh, just an outstanding presentation. Uh, give a lot of credit to this team, uh, John, for your leadership, to Marcus, David, uh, our neuro neurology team. Uh, I think we have, you know, best in class. Really appreciate what we've built here, uh, the 3T MRI, functional MRI, everything that is really needed. So congratulations to all of you. Um, I appreciate what you do for our patients and the success that we have. So uh, keep moving. Um, we'll invite you again, uh, you know, perhaps in a couple of years to show the, uh, you know, the 100 cases that you have done here at Connecticut Children's. So again, thank you everyone for joining. I'll see you this Friday at the Ask the Experts. Uh, John Shriver is going to be on PTO, so I'll be pinch hitting for him. And we also have a discussion on long-haul COVID. Uh, take care, be safe, and we'll see you again. Bye-bye.